Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Hard Run Box podcast for episode two. In this episode, we're talking about news topics. It's a news video, not the Linus discussion from last week. We're talking about just regular everyday stuff. So we're going to go into DLSS 3.5 Ray Reconstruction, which was just announced by NVIDIA. Our thoughts on what the technology actually does, how that's going to impact our benchmarking in the future. We're going to be talking about VRAM testing, some follow-up from the 4060Ti 16 gigabyte review as well, some of the visual versus performance things in there. GPU Busy, Intel's new PresentMon feature that they've integrated uh, for anyone to use, NVIDIA vBIOS stuff as well, and then some interesting off-topic chat from the things we've been doing in the last week. So yeah, great episode. I've really enjoyed doing it, so let's get into it. Well, hello, everyone. <laughs> Podcast episode two. How about that? We've made a few changes. You'll notice that I've gone um, dark mode to match Steve's. I don't know. You're not as dark this time as is in the last one for people watching the video feed, but it's, right. it's more matched now, I'd say, okay. between our setups. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I don't know what I did last time. So I just turned some lights on, did some stuff, was like, that'll work. Yeah, I think it's mostly audio that people care about, but um, I think it's a yeah. podcast. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, there's a few people saying the video quality on mine wasn't so good, so hopefully that's um that'll be fixed and a bit improved for this episode. Um, as well, I guess yeah, thanks to everyone that listened or watched the first episode. I think it got a lot more attention, <laughs> I guess, than we were expecting. <laughs> lots of people listening, lots of people watching, which which was great. Yeah, it's um, it's all downhill from here, Tim. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, we started with a hot topic. This episode, we're going to be talking about just normal everyday stuff. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a lot of people won't be as interested, but we'll see. Yeah. Now, all downhill, we peaked early, but that's okay. <laughs> we, yeah. So with this episode, uh, we are now on all the audio platforms. So I think last time it was sort of the feed was updating. So if you wanted to sign up to Spotify or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all your favorite podcast apps, this podcast should be there now for you to search. Um, it wasn't working super well during the first couple of days, but, but by now it looks like that's all sorted. So yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun, but we're mm-hmm. not going to be talking about Linus in this episode. We're going to be talking about 
just normal everyday news topics. It's mm. a new episode. Things have been happening by the time yeah. this goes out. I think we'll be halfway through Gamescom, which is happening over in, I think it's Germany in, in Europe. So, But anyway, we, we've made the poor business decision not to talk about Linus-related matters. So yep. we'll, uh, we'll proceed with, with normal news, as you said. So what what is the normal news, Tim? I've I've got a coffee here ready to listen to what you've got to you've got to tell me. So let's let's get into it. Yeah, I'll repeat what you've heard because I know that you're on the on the media briefing for this. So anyway. I, I've totally forgotten, Tim. Tell me, tell me you're all totally about. Totally forgotten. All right, I've, for for the podcast for podcasting purposes, I've erased that from my memory. It wasn't that I wasn't right. paying attention at the time. Just to be clear. I mean, with all these media presentations, the first half you probably could have just not paid attention because <laughs> um, the news is, was sort of halfway through. But anyway, we won't tell NVIDIA that because we are talking about DLSS 3.5, mm. um, which they've announced at Gamescom this week, a couple of days ago by the time this podcast goes out, which is a new feature that they're adding to their DLSS uh, suite called Ray Reconstruction. So I guess the way that NVIDIA's segmented DLSS so far as there's been DLSS 2, which has been super resolution. DLSS 3 has been the introduction of frame generation. And now we have DLSS 3.5, uh, which is ray reconstruction. So this is effectively for games that are using ray tracing. It is uh, replacing the game's built-in uh, denoising filter mm -hmm. with a DLSS enhanced denoiser. Uh, which they're calling ray reconstruction. So the way that ray tracing normally works in games is that the actual you know, ray traced image is accumulated across multiple frames or multiple pixels because you can't really run ray tracing at a super high you know, ray count at the moment. You know, GPUs still aren't that powerful, so they're running at a fairly low uh, ray count, which creates a fairly noisy image. So denoises are a really key component of that to you know, the final image. And with DLSS already sort of reconstructing images just normally, so just using normal pixel data and things like that, they've gone, well, surely we could use this for ray tracing as well. So that instead of denoising and then DLSS upscaling, you sort of do the whole thing in the one go, which will hopefully improve uh, image quality. That's at least what NVIDIA is claiming with this technology. Uh, they've shown us multiple um, examples of sort of traditional denoises versus DLSS 3.5 ray reconstruction. And, you know, it does seem to show an improvement to visual quality. So the image isn't as grainy. Um, there's more accuracy in terms of the image. So if you want to have your car headlights being shown occasionally with denoising passes with ray tracing, that would sort of blend the headlight light to around the car, which isn't very accurate. And so DLSS, you know, ray reconstruction, not only is that headlight ray traced going to be less grainy and have a hopefully higher visual quality, but it's going to be more accurate as well without as much of that smearing and kind of ghosting, like denoising, ghosting sort of thing. So NVIDIA as well, before we have a little bit of a discussion about this, um, claims that there's not much of a performance difference between running uh, DLSS 2 or 3 and DLSS 3.5. So using DLSS to um, the, do the denoising pass and have rec ray reconstruction isn't going to impact the performance all that much so it should run roughly the same and also it will be available for all rtx gpus so while frame generation is only for rtx 40 series gpus super resolution and ray reconstruction will be available right the way down to the 20 series which is great because we don't want to see features um, being restricted to certain gpu mm -hmm. um, models so 
we were both in the briefing. Did you have like any immediate thoughts about this when you saw it a couple of days ago from NVIDIA? Uh, no, I thought everything they showed looked good and was interesting, but ultimately I was sitting there going, hmm, I can't wait till Tim has a look at this and <laughs> we get to sort of look at it hands on and, and, and see. But I mean, impressive claims, impressive what they showed, the fact that performance was the same or in, in the instances they showed, it was actually a little bit better. Um, so that yeah. was interesting. And there was definitely a noticeable improvement to the image quality. So yeah, all good stuff for sure. I'm very keen to check it out. But at the moment, yeah, obviously. I mean, I think with this sort of stuff, generally what they claim is pretty accurate, but then yep. how it works in motion and that sort of stuff, uh, yeah, that needs some pretty careful analysis, which I'm sure you'll get to do soon. But yeah, great yeah. to see that it works on all RTX GPUs, obviously. Uh, but does lead to, which you pointed out during the briefing, a bit of uh, confusion with the naming there and what supports what and what versions mm -hmm. of DLS. That's going to be a bit a bit tricky. I don't really know how they actually get around that. Yeah, yeah, it is an awkward one, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. they've sort of gone with, you know, you're buying an RTX Voice Series GPU, so it supports DLSS 3. Mm. And then DLSS 3.5 is actually supported on the older RTX GPUs, but not all of the 3.5 features. You will get ray reconstruction, but you won't get frame generation. So the new thing they've added you'll be able to use, but you won't be able to use <laughs> what was previously being referred to as DLSS 3, mm. which is kind of the awkwardness of NVIDIA giving a numbering scheme to also adding features in. That's right. So it's sort of like they've gone 2, 3, 3.5 for super res, frame gen, and now ray reconstruction. Yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult because you'd think that ideally 3.5, you know, would all of the features would be available. But yeah, so that's going to be an interesting thing to see how people, yeah, sort of get confused over it. But it does sound like in the actual games, each of these features will be separate toggles. So it won't be like, DLSS 3.5 on or off, it'll be separate things for super mm -hmm. resolution, frame generation, and ray reconstruction. So you will have the ability to go through and change the different settings um, as you see fit. Because they are replacing the DLSS, um, the neural network, with a combined one for ray reconstruction and super resolution, NVIDIA recommends having super res and ray reconstruction enabled when you're turning on ray reconstruction. So yeah, they, they sort of didn't seem super clear as to whether you'd be able to use this feature without DLSS, whether they'd trained it for that. So sort of the DLAA, yeah, they didn't seem like that was the focus for now. It was more just, mm -hmm. you'll be using this with SuperRes, you'll be getting the improved ray reconstruction feature, and you can just toggle that on or off in the games. Um, the games that have been announced to use this will be uh, Cyberpunk 2077 Phantom Liberty, Portal with RTX, and Alan Wake 2. So I think the first game will be um, Phantom Liberty, and I believe it should be coming out. This feature will be integrated when that expansion for that game is released. So you'll be able to go in and sort of start using this. And yeah, just from my perspective, like one of the issues that I've had with ray tracing visually, as a, apart from the obvious performance downsides that we've talked about <laughs> extensively, is that the actual quality of ray tracing in a lot of games isn't that impressive. Like there's a lot of low resolution flickering and sparkling. And even when you're standing still, they can often be just like this weird shimmering, especially on like metal surfaces. And we've seen that across many games where just the quality like, you know, this is a, a ray traced reflection, but it's not even of a higher quality than a traditional reflection. Obviously, ray tracing reflections can 
show you things that aren't in in frame. But often that quality is just being like, you know, it's clearly at a very low quality. Mm. Um, but at least what Nvidia is showing here seems to be a, a big improvement to the quality, which is going to be pretty key, I think, for ray tracing moving forward to have things like this. Obviously, the only downside is with these updated features and additions to the DLSS feature set is the fact that it's not just toggled on in all the games that already supported, say, DLSS 3, for example, which is why I suppose it's important to make it a new sort of iteration where it's mm-hmm. 3.5. So now you've got to go back and, you know, how many games are going to be updated to 3.5? Probably expect most of the key ones will eventually get support, but... Yeah, I would expect so. Yeah. And I suppose that's less of a concern for single-player games that people have pretty well played at this point and aren't going to be playing moving forward, especially with the, like, you know, people who have invested in an RTX 4090 or whatever. They've probably played those games and they're moving on looking for the next new thing. So if upcoming games yeah. have it, then that's fine. Yeah, and I think it'll be pretty easy to integrate this feature just based on the way that NVIDIA was talking about it. Um, it does require a few different game engine inputs, which again is why it's not like a you can't just copy over the 3.5 DLL file and expect that to provide ray reconstruction. Now, again, I haven't tested that, so I don't know for sure whether you'll be able to do that. I'm sure modders will be on this case, like with all those additional features, but it, mm-hmm. it does seem like this is, you know, it does require a bit of additional um, yeah, developer input to replace their current uh, denoising passes and you know nvidia is claiming things like it's much easier for developers again that's you know remains to be seen but yeah i mean i would expect that all of you know the games that use nvidia's main rtx suite and go heavy on dlss will be thinking of integrating something like this into the future and hopefully it will sort of reduce some of those cases of games using very bad quality denoises mm-hmm. um you know obviously there's a lot of variance between games some games use much higher quality ray tracing effects than others and something like this will smooth everything out hopefully and, and really add to the the features package um that that um that nvidia currently has and that of course brings us to well now amd has got to compete with this because there's going to be a quality difference not just a performance difference now but a ray tracing quality difference between amd and nvidia gpus in games that support ray reconstruction because nvidia gpus will be able to use this feature down to the 20 series, AMD GPUs will have to use the traditional denoiser, which for some games is probably going to be a lot lower quality. So Mm. how do you see that playing out? Not too different, I suppose, to what we currently have. And the situation we currently have is like, if you're doing ray tracing, kind of want a GeForce GPU anyway. I think that's fair to say. Yeah. We've We've been saying for how long now, if you care about ray tracing, if it's a focus for you, you're going to be largely playing single player games and, you know, you want, to enable ray tracing, you're happy with the performance hit because you're prioritizing visuals over frame rate, then you're getting a GeForce GPU. It'd be crazy to buy a Radeon GPU if that was the case. And I think we're moving, we're certainly, I don't know, slowly moving to to that being a reality for, for high-end gaming where you want to enable ray tracing. It's, it's certainly starting to be much more impactful for the latest and greatest titles. It does, I don't want to say... It doesn't transform the game necessarily in all instances, or it's like it's not always noticeably better. But when it is better, like it sort of jumps out at you as, oh wow, that looks a lot better with ray tracing enabled. I'm still not at a point where I would go enabling ray tracing by default. I prefer input high frame rates, even when I'm playing single player games. I just don't like sort of that laggy feeling with the mouse when you're at you know 60 FPS or less. So personal preference thing. 
yeah, definitely improving. And while it widens the gap between GeForce and Radeon GPUs for ray tracing, um, at the least gap was pretty wide. The gap was already. pretty wide already, so I'm not sure how much that really hurts the, I don't know, the value or the the appeal of Radeon GPUs because, yeah, if you were... Yeah, especially if those rumors are correct about AMD not really having high-end GPUs for their next generation. Mm-hmm. Um, again, have no idea whether that's true or not, but something like that is, you know, if NVIDIA is still the high-end option for high-end ray tracing and AMD isn't even bothering to compete, then they probably won't need to compete too much with this. But yeah, I think it's it's good that, you know, games are now coming out with ray tracing that's definitely worth using. And something like this would make ray tracing even more usable because often the, the concern has always been what's the visual uplift versus the performance hit. Mm-hmm. And what NVIDIA is claiming with this is better visuals, no performance hit, or in some cases, better performance. Mm-hmm. So if that's allowing developers to integrate even better quality ray tracing effects, then that gap between quality and performance is going to shorten a lot. And people are going to enable ray tracing and be like, yeah, the quality is actually quite a lot better now. Mm-hmm. So then it makes a lot more sense to keep it enabled. Whereas if you're getting those like ugly, grainy artifacts and things on on all the surfaces in the game and you're moving around, there's all this shimmering and stuff. It's like, it's not... It, that's not what was promised when ray tracing was announced back in however many years ago. They, they announced a really revolutionary <laughs> quality and this seems more in line with what they were thinking. Yeah, that's right. And it's one of those necessary steps towards getting to that promised future. The, you know, we, We've been hearing that ray tracing is such an important feature as the future of gaming, which we haven't really disputed. But yeah, with, with Turing, you were promised this game-changing experience that just never sort of happened. Uh, but ray reconstruction, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just another step to getting there. Um, and every time they improve things a bit, gets a bit better, then we're getting closer to a point in time where you sort of start saying, well, you you don't really want to be playing this new title without ray tracing because it just looks so much better and it really enhances the experience. And we will get there eventually. You and I, we're not like, yeah, we haven't been ray tracing deniers. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the obviously the performance hit we saw in earlier games and even pretty much most games today, unless you've got an RTX 4090, it's just pretty hard to justify that kind of performance hit. Like in games like... Yeah. F one twenty three, for example, I think it more than halves the frame rate for very subtle improvements <laughs> in, in visual quality, and that's yeah, true of a lot good of luck games. Looking for it, yeah. That, with that being the case for a lot of the games, it's just yeah, it's hard to get very excited about ray tracing, but yeah, it's improving, it's getting better, um, and I mean, it's something that eventually, at some point in the future, Radeon GPUs are going to have to catch up in a big way. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have to catch up on performance Mm -hmm. obviously that's one area where they're still lagging behind Mm -hmm. and then obviously features like this are just taking them further away um which again you know radeon has we've talked about this extensively issues with their software stack and being behind most of the time you know they were behind with the super resolution era they're behind with the frame generation era fsr3 is still not out at least mm. as when we're recording this podcast, maybe the, they'll announce it like tomorrow or something. Who knows? But, you know, it's still not out. And then they're going to be behind for this like, I don't know, ray reconstruction, denoising era. And I know AMD does have their own um, Fidelity FX denoising solutions and things as part of their software suite. But whether or not that's equivalent to this is something, you know, I'm not, mm. I haven't looked extensively into that. So I don't know for sure. But 
yeah, it's going to become a problem for them at some point. It's just a matter of when. And mm-hmm. I think at least for now, you know, mid-range, lower-end products, which seems to be mostly where AMD is competing, it's probably not going to be a huge difference. Um, but certainly it's going to be, you know, a deciding factor for some people. Like you look at the features, you look at something like this, you would be like, yeah, that's something I'm interested in and I'll buy it for that reason. Yeah, we're talking, it, it's a tough one because we're talking at the very top end. So if you've got like, I don't know, RTX 4080 money, RTX 4090 money, and we sort of made these arguments in the initial reviews as well, you're probably just going to buy a GeForce GPU because you're spending a lot of money already. So you kind of yep. want to just ensure that you get the best experience possible. And a lot of, I suppose, AMD fans, Radeon users didn't necessarily like the conclusions of those videos where, you know, we're looking at a 7900 XTX, $1,000, um, you know, it's what, what was two hundred dollars US less at MSRP compared to the RTX forty eighty, and yep. we kind of made the argument that if you're spending already a thousand dollars US, which I think, well, I've been around in this industry for a long time, so I guess that's why I think that's an absurd amount of money to spend on a <laughs> solitary graphics card. If you've just stepped into this over the last few years, then y- your opinion's probably a bit different to mine on that one. But if you're spending what I think is an absurd amount, of, absurd amount of money on a graphics card, you know, what's $1,200? You might as well just go, well, you know, I want DLSS 3. You know, I want frame generation. Now you're getting ray reconstruction. Um, just DLSS in general, the better ray tracing performance, the more mature ray tracing performance that we've talked about. You're just going to pay the $200, aren't you? I would have thought so. Yeah. Which is always the issue that AMD sort of had with the higher end products is mm-hmm. the, the higher up you go in the stack, the the less it's just on performance. Mm-hmm. Like if you're buying a $300 GPU and you see a 20% performance difference, that, that's a big deal. And you, you're probably going to be like, oh, well, you know, that's going to make a big difference for my gaming. But if you're spending $1,000, it's like mm. I've, I've already sort of gone beyond the point where it's just about performance because honestly, the difference between a, a $600 GPU and a thousand dollar gpu in terms of performance it's there's a big gap but it's not as big in terms of like 30 to 60 fps or 60 to 100 fps as what you'd get between 300 and 600 mm-hmm. so you're sort of looking for those extras to justify the price and justify why you'd be wanting to spend so much money that's so right it comes down to these things like you want it to have future proof level of vram you want it to have you know, you want to do game streaming seriously. So you want to have the the best capabilities in that area. You want to use it for maybe some GPU rendering or production work or something where NVIDIA is still quite far ahead. Not that we've looked into that extensively, but at least that's what most people seem to say. So you can kind of see why AMD would be thinking for a future generation to not produce high-end GPUs until they've got some of those things in order. And there's certainly some... NVIDIA's putting a lot of this investment into AI and it's sort of paying off now with the quality of super resolution, the ability of frame gen, and also they're using AI training and deep learning and things for ray reconstruction. And you know, AMD went with this non-AI approach for FSR and eventually it's going to come to a point where that's not going to be sufficient. Now I'd probably say right now it's probably not sufficient, but you know, it become even more of an issue, you know, that lack of investment. And oddly enough, Intel has been investing in this with things like XESS, which is AI based. So I'm sure that you know um, Intel will be looking very closely at this and thinking, how do we, you know, enhance XESS to include something like ray reconstruction? Because if Nvidia's done it and we're doing something similar, we should be able to 
have that feature whereas who knows maybe amd is going to struggle a bit there so mm. yeah it's just an, just an interesting one but my question for you is are features like this going to make benchmarking harder because it's coming into gamers are probably going to enable a feature like this if they have access to it and it does make a visual quality difference compared to a radeon or intel gpu that doesn't support this feature so you've kind of got that double whammy of performance difference and quality difference so Mm. you you do all the gpu benchmarking how are you going to sort of approach this well it definitely without question makes it a lot more difficult very messy and there's as (laughs) as we've found time and time again there's really no right way or no no way of doing it that satisfies all parties so not that I they think that's necessarily the goal. We just try to do the best testing we can with what we think make, makes the most sense. Uh, and we've basically concluded recently that FSR and DLSS don't really have any place in benchmark graphs. Um, they're better off being investigated independently in terms of image quality because that's such a huge component to those technologies. And then with those image quality comparisons, then include the benchmark data and that's mm-hmm. led us to believe that you know DLSS three or DLSS rather, just in general, is a better technology than FSR. How much better depends on the situation. But yeah, as for you know where you know we're seeing ray tracing with different image qualities or potentially different image qualities now with you know the denoising of ray reconstruction, that's tough. I mean, really, that would require sort of us to work together with you providing some content that first actually investigates that shows what the difference is and then you know that carries on in the benchmarks but i think in that in that specific example it doesn't change too much because you know most high-end uh comparisons that we can do with you know games like cyberpunk the radeon gpus are that far behind anyway that it's not like it was a situation where they would be they were very similar in terms of performance, or maybe the Radeon GPUs were a bit faster, but Nvidia was providing gr- better quality image. Then it would be quite difficult to work out. Well, you know, you're getting good performance here, but the image quality is not quite as good, and then it becomes quite subjective. Yeah. But when they're much faster and potentially delivering better image quality, bit of a slam dunk, pretty easy for that one. But yeah, I mean, all of these technologies just have made benchmarking so difficult because half the time they like to yep. turn on by themselves or you know sometimes I'll, i've seen fsr in cyberpunk just turn itself on just at the most random times um when, when resetting games loading different presets so it, it, you've really got to be on your game you've got to triple check all of the settings before you know you get the benchmark data then you've got to look at the benchmark data does that make sense is that pretty much where it should be so yeah, it's um, it's it's getting increasingly difficult as time goes by. I think it's getting more difficult even with things like VRAM testing, which is one of the topics that we've sort of flagged here as well. Mm-hmm. Is that nowadays with reviews like your forty sixty Ti sixteen gigabyte review compared to the eight gig model, you're getting to this stage where you know performance isn't showing the full picture even in day one reviews. We've mm-hmm. got that, you know. Yeah, there's typically not a huge difference in performance between cards of different VRAM configurations, but these days games are dealing with inadequate levels of VRAM very differently. Some games will stutter, but there's some games that just massively drop the quality. Mm-hmm. And I think in your reviews, you've sort of, sort of had to go through and do both, show mm-hmm. the visual quality differences between the GPUs and then show the performance differences. But that seems to have made some interesting feedback from viewers. So did you want mm-hmm. to get into that? 
Yeah, well, this situation isn't new. It's been happening forever, as in, you know, how games handle running out of VRAM, that the issues that we're seeing with the eight gigabyte cards today happened with four gigabyte cards, two gigabyte cards, and so on. But yes, it, it whenever it's sort of this problem, it, it comes in cycles and waves. Like you get to, you know, the next generation consoles, the next generation games that require a bit more VRAM. And then we see, you know, where eight gigabytes was sufficient for so long, it starts to become insufficient and, and you start to see all these problems creep in where, as you've said, some games like a game that's been out for a while, Halo Infinite, you play that game for a while and you know, eight gigabyte cards on the ultra setting do run out of VRAM and then you end up with all these awful looking textures and you know muddy graphics and that sort of stuff. Other games, uh, The Last of Us Part 1, Hogwarts Legacy, they introduce heaps of stuttering. Uh, Forspoken was another game where you just get the muddy textures. So yeah, with the with the 4060 Ti review so the 8 gigabyte versus 16 gigabyte review when we we finally got our hands on the 16 gigabyte model uh i got a bit of feedback from well just people online viewers people in our you know discord community so patreon float plane members that the review seemed a bit disjointed because in the first half of the the review i went out of my way to highlight issues with the 8 gigabyte card and when i say i went out of my way i mean i just i showed those issues so you know, for Spoken, for yep. example, where the 8-gigabyte card doesn't load all the textures, Halo Infinite, where it doesn't load all the textures, uh, The Last of Us Part 1, where at 1440p, using the Ultra settings, the 16-gigabyte card plays fine, the 8-gigabyte card runs into performance-related issues, generally stuttering or lower frame rates. So highlighted a lot of those differences, but then when we go to our 15-game benchmark, the overall result was just a few percent different. Part of that is because... Well, of the 15 games, the vast majority of them run on eight gigabyte cards. But people, I guess, wanted to see like where I'm showing those big, you know, 20, 30, 40% differences in a graph. So you can say that overall the 16 gigabyte cards, 30% faster or something like that, which is probably never going to happen because we've highlighted that, you know, this doesn't happen in most games at the moment. We're sort of getting to a point in time where it's starting to happen. It's not the norm. Well, usually it doesn't even happen in a, for a day one review. Usually well, it's like you're revisiting it two years later and then you can show that, whereas today it's only a handful of games. So That's right. And testing VRAM capacity, as you know, you've already talked about, mentioned, manifests in different ways. And it's so difficult in a lot of instances to actually find the VRAM limit, because, you know, this is a shortcoming of benchmarks. We don't try to hide it. Like when you benchmark a game, you load up into a level that's really demanding, and then you do anywhere from maybe a 30-second, a 60-second pass, depending on the game, what it requires. It can vary. But you do some kind of benchmark pass that's pretty well repeatable. You take, you do that three times, get your average frame rate. You get your, you know, in our case, average frame rate, 1% lows, and pretty accurate way of testing, and you get good data. Problem can be, though, that it might take in certain games, like the Callisto Protocol comes to mind, it can take anywhere from five minutes to maybe in Halo Infinite, it takes about half an hour to max out that VRAM buffer. And you're not benchmarking a single graphics card for a single benchmark pass for half an hour because <laughs> it'll take you hours to get one data set. So that, that's that's the problem with, with VRAM testing is that you know it, it doesn't necessarily rear its ugly head in a 60 second benchmark pass it can take multiple minutes or even you know up to an hour to to fill the whole buffer and there's just 
no way around that. The, basically, what we have to do is what we do, like I just mentioned, with stuff like DLSS3 and ray tracing, those things really require their own dedicated content pieces where we might spend days or even weeks or potentially months gathering data, looking at a lot of different situations, and then you know, really analyzing that. And that's what I did with my initial um, VM comparison. So two and a half years ago, or probably three years ago now, I said that I expected the RTX 3070 to age poorly relative to the RX 6800. I never expected it to be ray tracing, mind you, um, just due to a, the having half as much VRAM. And I, I thought, mm, we're definitely starting to see a couple of edge cases where eight gigabytes of VRAM is no longer sufficient. So with new generation of consoles, newer games coming out, and just things keep moving forward slowly but surely, I expect in two, two years, three years, that we're going to see more situations where eight gigabytes isn't enough. And that, that certainly happened. And because we were starting to see it more and more, I, I did an in-depth investigation, you could say, and looked at a lot of games and heard, got feedback from the community where people said, you know, I'm a huge Halo fan. I've, I've got a, you know, an RTX 3070 Ti, which provides, you know, a hundred and something frames per second. But if I play for over half an hour, uh, I have to reset the game because it slows right down or textures start missing. So yeah, looked into that, found out that that was indeed the case and yeah, found out what there was more than half a dozen other games where we found issues. So yeah, it's reviews aren't completely foolproof when it comes to benchmarks, but we always get to the bottom of things. Like there's nothing that's sort of going on that nobody doesn't eventually work out and we're able to show you that. So it's just, yeah. got to, and you're not really, I wouldn't say you ever get led astray. Like it's not like, it's not like nobody knew that the 3070 didn't have eight gigabytes of VRAM and probably wouldn't age as well as an RX 6800. So that was made clear two and a half years ago. It's just, dear, it's that future proofing. Takes a while to find that evidence. Yeah. It's sort of that future proofing argument slash gamble, isn't it? Because it's like, well, do you just buy what's arguably better value right now in the hope that for the lifespan of the product, whether you plan on keeping it for one year, two year, three year, four year, that it serves you well in that period of time? Or do you go, oh, I'm going to spend a bit more money on the 16 gigabyte card because I think it'll be like, imagine if I had have claimed that the RX 6800 would end up being faster for you know, certain ray tracing situations in like three years when compared to the RTX 3070. Could you imagine, oh, imagine if going I... going on Reddit. Oh, imagine <laughs> making that claim to an... And it, it turns out to be accurate. Um, you know, and we're going to see more of it. There'll be more instances where, look, the performance probably isn't going to be amazing, but we have seen situations. Um, a Plague Tower Requiem, uh, the Callisto Protocol. We can pull real-world situations at 1080p where the 6800 is able to provide 60 FPS gaming yeah, and the 3070 is completely unusable. So that, that did really happen. Yeah, it would have been funny to read the uh, the Reddit comments. I don't think our reputation <laughs> would have survived something like that. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, yeah, it's difficult with all these features and things. You know, it, it, it can even come down to the, the games you play and it's sort of you have to predict like what sort of things you're going to be playing, mm. whether or not VRAM will be an issue or whether you'll benefit from something like ray reconstruction. You know, NVIDIA has only announced three games for that feature. So it's likely that you could just never play a game with that. You could realistically not play games that use something like frame generation or even games that may not use even DLSS, which is now sort of widespread. And, and that's why I think these reviews 
generally, at least your views, and certainly I've seen them from most other people as well, sort of include all these different areas. So it's sort of giving you the the idea of, well, you know, you sort of have to make the judgment call for yourself as to whether these things matter. And I know, and it, it kind of creates that situation where people can get a bit angry about the conclusion of reviews because some people like to, you know, project what they think is the ultimate thing that everyone needs to have onto mm-hmm. the review as a whole. So people will be like, well, you know, I disagree with Steve because ray tracing is everything. Mm-hmm. And I just mm-hmm. refuse to even consider AMD because I'm all about ray tracing. Whereas someone that plays competitive games like CSGO or whatever, it's like, who cares about ray tracing? I'm just in it for performance. So yeah, I think the approach of looking into things deeply having all these different investigations on the channel for people to watch and you can reference them back in reviews. You don't need to, you know, imagine if you had to include in a review, like a day one review, you had to include just the performance data. Then you had to include my entire DLSS three <laughs> video, my entire DLSS two video, the Ray reconstruction video, your VRAM video. You'll be getting to videos that are like two hours long. Yeah, no one's watching So hopefully people, yeah, people can go back and they can check out the things that, that matter to them. And I mm-hmm. think, we don't cover everything at Hardware Unbox. Like we certainly aren't covering things like NVIDIA's CUDA performance for production work and things like that. Like we're not really covering that, but across everyone, I think you'll be able to get the the best idea of how those features go and what matters to you. So there's, there's very few things I think have sort of slipped through the cracks mm-hmm. in terms of things like VRAM, like the, the, how many channels are they these days that do like side-by-sides and interest in playing games for the half an hour to an hour that sort of you've talked about and then often that will filter through to us like oh this person has has shown in this video that they were playing this title for an hour on maybe it's just mm-hmm. one gpu maybe it's a side by side and they're showing these like weird performance issues then then we can look into it and yeah it sort of enhances our our review content so yeah that that's a good yeah. point as well and that's what i sort of alluded to earlier that it's really a community effort it's not all on us and when we make that content it's not all our doing so as you say there's other people out there that are recording their gameplay uploading it to youtube some of them are doing it to you know grow their channel other people are just doing it because they're really enthusiastic gamers but that stuff gets you know filtered across to us and then we're like oh hang on what's what's happening in this game here and why would that be and you know when we get time we investigate that and add it to the growing pool of games that may be having problems with that sort of thing, whether it's a VRM or whatever. And yeah, circling back to what you were talking about with the reviews, I mean, we're obviously reviewing these products for gamers, so stuff like you know productivity, performance, and that. Not really what we're interested in, and it's generally not what our target audience is interested in either because you know we're a gaming-focused channel. I guess it's it kind of works out well, although I've, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I'm aware of the different types of gamers, but the fact that you come at gaming at a really different angle and interest to the way I come at gaming. So we can talk about our different gaming experiences and what's interesting and useful to each one of us to help sort of give an idea of making a well-rounded review that, you know, includes various different angles for gaming, whether it's competitive gaming or story-driven gaming. And yeah, sort of say, you know, if you if you do this and you you play within these variables, then stuff like DLSS3 frame generation could be very beneficial to you. But if you're playing CSGO or Fortnite, for example, DLSS3 is worthless. And on that note, it's kind of funny that um, 
DLSS three is making its way to Fortnite. I know Fortnite already has ray tracing, which you know. <laughs> oh yeah, that was part of that presentation, wasn't it? Yeah. So same one as three point five. I'm I'm DLSS. might I might make with Balin a fun video and and post it on the main channel where we play Fortnite, sort of because you can do one v one in creative, and Balin and I do that now and then. So sort of, and I'm very familiar with what the input is meant to feel like and respond in Fortnite. Uh, and that's what that's a really important thing when reviewing a multiplayer competitive type game, because if you've just if you've got very limited experience in the game, it's hard to know exactly how the game should respond and how it should feel and what the input should be like. But if you have a lot of experience with that, then yeah, stuff like DLS DLSS three, you can really feel the effects of that and and how it changes the game. So it could be fun to do like a whole range of tests fairly extensively so you know play Fortnite at 200 frames per second as you normally would then play i don't know maybe with dlss3 at i don't know 45 fps so to be end up being about 90 fps or whatever and then you know 60 fps with dlss3 and so on and so forth Uh, that'd be i don't know that'd be kind of interesting at least for me to see at which point you know it's of detriment it's it's useful and then it's kind of useless is in the sense that it's just the frame rates are so high you can't really tell if it's on or off yeah i'd be i'd be keen on seeing that especially because you know i don't do that sort of competitive gaming so Mm -hmm. it's always like i make a dlss3 video and i have to talk about latency because obviously it's a factor Mm -hmm. but for me the way that i would experience latency in a game is very different to in a multiplayer title and but even then you know, I've noticed the latency effects of DLSS3 in games that I've been playing. And it's kind of the more that I've tested it, the more I think it's certain types of games that very much shows the limitations of it. Mm -hmm. The first-person games in particular, just the way that you typically play a first-person game, the way you're moving the camera around and your general movements makes DLSS3's latency a bit more noticeable than a third-person game. So playing like Cyberpunk, which is first-person, versus like a Hogwarts Legacy, which is third-person, you kind of get a, a bit of a different experience. And I, I certainly agree with what you're saying about how like it's it's kind of relative to what you've already experienced. So uh-huh. games that I've gone into and I've enabled DLSS3 that I've never played before, it's much harder to notice mm. uh, the latency impacts. And it's only once you start tweaking the settings like you know, maybe you play the first playthrough or a, a bit of it with DLSS3 on and then you start optimizing settings a bit as you go in, which is typically how I play a single player game. You crank everything up and then you're like, oh, let me dial a few things down. Let me get it dialed in for the rest of my 50 hours in the game. You know, eventually you start figuring out, oh, it, it can feel a little better if I change this setting or in some instances it might be there's no DLSS in the game, but you turn on reflex and that can improve how the game feels as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's sort of definitely matches my experience. And I'd be keen to see how your like in-game performance improves um, based on the latency mm-hmm. because even NVIDIA has talked about, not in with DLSS3 specifically, but features like reflex that they are very convinced that game you know, professional level gamers, not that I'm claiming you're a pro level gamer, but you're well, well, quite no, if, you, if you want to make that claim, that's fine. Okay. So pro level gamers like Steve from Hardware Unboxed, <laughs> um, you know, they improve their in-game performance with higher frame rates, which is why they're, t- you know, it's sort of a marketing thing where they're going, this is why you need a powerful GPU to mm-hmm. play games that aren't very intensive. It's mm-hmm. why you should invest in high-end G-Sync monitors 500 hertz displays, those sorts of things. So 
Yeah, it'll be interesting to see which side of NVIDIA's marketing plays out for something like Fortnite. Like, is DLSS 3 benefiting Fortnite on the the visuals and smoothness front? Or is it more on what they've talked about with their latency and mm-hmm. and those angles? Because, you know, not that I'm really criticizing their marketing, but they are trying to have it both ways. So it'll be very interesting to see, you know, which way ends up winning in something like that with your sort of skills. Because if I did that, I'd just be embarrassing myself and it, I'd be terrible no no matter whether I'm playing at 60 FPS or 500 so it makes no difference yeah well professional gamer Steve will get back to you on that one hopefully we can make a video in the not too distant yep. future another thing related to benchmark that I wanted to talk about in this podcast is the GPU busy metric you might mm. have seen gamers nexus video where I think he was talking with Tom from Intel about oh. their new present mon uh beta version which you know they've sort of updated to include this new metric called gpu busy mm-hmm. so the idea behind this is that normally when you're delivering frame time information this is that's the final frame time data that you're receiving so the actual how long it's taking to render each frame whereas a gpu busy metric is telling you how long the gpu is working on that particular frame so it could be a case where the overall frame time for a frame is 10 milliseconds but the gpu's only been working for eight milliseconds in which case there's two milliseconds there that's been accounted for because of gpu processing or driver overhead or something like that so some games we've seen built-in benchmarks or other you know telemetry in the game expose things like gpu busy so you'll often see like an overall frame time, a CPU frame time, and a GPU frame time. Mm -hmm. But with this particular piece of software now, you'll be able to enable that for any game, which is really going to, at least in my opinion, open up the ability to assess things like CPU bottlenecks a bit easier in certain games. Like previously, you've just had to sort of look and say, oh, my FPS is kind of low here, and also my GPU isn't being 100% utilized. So then you're sort of thinking, oh, okay, well, that maybe that means I'm, cpu limited or something with gpu busy you know you can make frame time charts and things like that to sort of show exactly areas where yeah where you may be cpu limited so have Mm -hmm. you looked into this too much i have to admit i haven't had a chance yet i've been finishing up some big benchmarks on new cpus like the 5600 x3d which will be live by now and the ryzen 5 7500f which i believe will also be live by the time this podcast is so i've been I've had a lot of, you know, and I've been updating the Arc GPU stuff, so I've been a bit slammed at the at the bench uh, test systems. So, <laughs> yeah, but I have obviously watched a few of the videos and looked at it. Very interesting. Pretty excited to to give it a whirl. And we'll probably do some kind of updated overhead type video looking at a range of different GPU and CPU classes uh, at some point. Um, and, yeah, that would obviously be a very useful tool for doing that. So it's something I plan to to check out and and potentially use. I'm not sure if it's something we would add on a regular basis to the testing we do because I'm not sure how useful that information is to like consumers or viewers when we're recommending like GPU purchases, for example, because the idea is just to use the fastest possible CPU memory combo we can to yeah. get the most out of the GPU. And um, it doesn't show the end result frame rate either. It's sort of like mm-hmm. an intermediary. Mm-hmm. So you know, for, for consumers, you're sort of mostly interested in the end product, which is mm-hmm. the frame rate, the frame times, et cetera. So. Yeah. So I think for general reviews and general testing, it's not going to change much. But yeah, when we have interesting odd th- oddities like, you know, the overhead stuff, then it could be a useful tool that helps investigate that. So that that's cool. Obviously, the more tools and things like they have at your disposal, the, 
the better conclusions and, and insights you can provide. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's good to see these sort of features, yeah, becoming more easy to use because mm-hmm. there has been those times where I've seen those those game benchmarks or in, in-game features where you're like, oh, you know, it's kind of handy to have not just the overall frame rate but the GPU frame rate, the CPU frame rate because then it's really giving you more of a concrete example of, hey, maybe my CPU isn't inadequate and that's why I'm not getting the performance that I'm expecting mm-hmm. or um, it's not giving me the adequate level of performance. So, you know, for, for end users, it's kind of, you know, that having access to that metric is maybe going to make it easier for upgrading. So you sort of get that better idea of, well, I'm playing this game and, you know, my GPU seems to be coping fine, but obviously the CPU isn't fast enough, so I shouldn't just waste money on upgrading the GPU because I'm actually like quite CPU limited in that game. And and at times it can be difficult to assess that, especially because there are times when like a lot of people, I think when they see CPU limited, they think that that means in task manager, the CPU needs to be running at 100% or have <laughs> you know one core maxed out at 100%. And there are certainly games these days that task manager doesn't show 100% CPU utilization or even 100% on one core, but the game is still not GPU limited or is being limited by something else, whether mm-hmm. that's memory or CPU, and it's just not coming through in those sorts of those sorts of things. With something like GPU Busy, you'll be able to just go in and be like, yep, my GPU is running just fine, um, but frame times are much higher than the GPU Busy time, so therefore it's another system bottleneck, and we've now got some concrete information about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. I don't think it's going to be like we're not going to have charts where we're comparing GPUs based on GPU busy. Mm-hmm. It's still going to be total overall frame time. Um, but yeah, just improves the arsenal of things that we can use to sort of investigate things. And it's good to see. Um, I think now NVIDIA, AMD, and Intel have all made pretty um, good improvements and contributions to this sort of testing over time between Intel Present One, AMD OCAT, and NVIDIA's, I think it's FrameView. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. You know, they've, they've all been adding in various different things, power metrics, mm-hmm. frame time metrics. NVIDIA's been big on latency in their features and things like that. So, yeah, it's good to see. Yeah, and obviously there's stuff like hardware info as well with Revatuna that has, you know, yep. plethora of information. Of yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's always being updated. So that's a really useful tool as well. Yeah, another interesting topic that I saw this week is that NVIDIA's BIOS signature lock has been unlocked mm. according to a post that I saw on Tech Power Up. So for people that weren't aware, I guess GPU biases on the NVIDIA side have been very hard locked for quite a while now. So that means that you can't just go and, you know, let's say you have a 4060 or something like that and you can't just flash an overclocked BIOS onto your reference model card or mm-hmm. in the case where your GPU is being cut down a bit, you can't flash the fully unlocked GPU die version of the BIOS onto your cut down version to see whether it works or mm-hmm. gives mm-hmm. you additional performance because I believe it was something like the, the RX 5700 on the AMD side, you used to be able to flash that up to a 5700 XT in some circumstances. Um, NVIDIA has really locked that down and has it's really not been possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's been these new BIOS uh, modding tools available that now allow you to do various different um, BIOS flashes depending on the sort of cards that you've got. So for up to 20 series cards, so that's up to the Turing cards, um, you'll be able to unlock 
I believe it's like basically anything, like the locks have been fully bypassed for those sorts of cards. Whereas with up to even the 40 series cards now, you'll be able to do some cross-flashing, which I believe is where, let's say you buy a 4090 and then another 4090 has a an overclock profile. Theoretically, you'll be able to over, put the overclock profile onto your base model card. Whereas with 20 series and below, you should be able to do more than that, like flashing BIOSes for GPUs that even aren't even compatible, which is obviously going to brick your card most of the time. But maybe pro versus consumer, you'll be able to do and things like that. So. Yeah, and I think it goes beyond like, you know, if you bought an MSI Ventus, you want to put the Supreme X BIOS on it. Uh, yep. It's like you could go, I think, I believe my understanding is you could use any, say if it was a 4090, any 4090 BIOS. So if, yes. if Asus had like a Strix BIOS that, you know, did something fancy or special, you'd be able to apply that to your Ventus card cooling may be an issue in that example but you you can yep. i believe you can do that now like it's you can go across vendors so that's cool yeah it definitely is cool because there's you know one of the issues with overclocking um nvidia gpus not that i think overclocking is like super important <laughs> these days but yep. you know depending on the gpu you buy they'll have a different maximum power target that you'll be able to apply to that card so often the lower tier cards may cap out at 105% on the power target, but then you buy the ASUS Strix model and it allows you to do 120%. And there's really no way to get around that. Like you can't just download mm -hmm. MSI Afterburner and set the power target. It's like locked in the BIOS. Whereas a feature like this, again, there'll be cooling issues, <laughs> but yep. you should theoretically be able to apply that 120% power target um, to your more entry-level card. Of course, I'm not advocating for just randomly flashing GPU BIOSes because there's a lot of risk associated with that. Well, there's actually, um, yeah, as, as I thought that might come up. There's actually not really um, because it's not like a motherboard. I mean, you've got BIOS flashback on motherboards now, but with a graphics card, providing you have another graphics card or probably more likely an iGPU, you can't really destroy your card by flashing it because if you flash it, it resets, you lose display, and it's like, uh-oh, I messed that up. You just boot off the iGPU, go into Windows, and you can reflash the previous BIOS or another safe BIOS. So I suppose if you're tech-savvy enough to flash a BIOS, you can fix any bugger-ups by just, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's yeah, it's not that risky. So you can use the iGPU to save yourself there or, or just another graphics card of any description. Yeah, I guess the issue would more be blowing up your GPU or running okay. it above the specs for <laughs> okay. the, the, the power stages or, or something like that. That's... I suppose there's some potential there, but I think with the variables that are still in play, unlikely. Um, I mean, if you flash, like I said, a, like a, a Ventus card that's got no VRM cooling or something like that, then you'll see horrific throttling and you'll probably impact <laughs> performance negatively and you'll have to flash back the BIOS. Uh, but... It'll probably be more, like, I think it's less useful for that. Uh, and as you've said, like, you know, we're not really advocating for GPU overclocking being an amazing game changer these days because it's not like a, I don't know, a 980 Ti or whatever where you can get 20 plus percent out of it from overclocking. You're like 5% these days, you know, high single digits. But, you know, if you've got, a, there's a good value 4090 out there that doesn't, what did I just say? Did I just say good value 4090? I meant, oh no! Yeah. Oh, here go the comments. Um, what I meant to say was, I just like to first release my apology. Uh, no, if there's a 
a 4090 that is better value or, or good value relative to other 4090s that has a good PCB that Buildzoid, a Buildzoid approved PCB that doesn't cost Strix money, you could buy that. And if you're interested in water cooling, put a water block on that and then flash it with a Strix type BIOS. So that's kind of neat. I think at the end of the day, yep. it's not about how imp- whether you do or don't agree that overclockings of benefit. It's more just giving people the flexibility and freedom to mess with their hardware like the good old days and you know, customize it and do whatever they want to do with it without being hard locked down. So I think that's the main thing. There are some cons and pros to this. For example, I you know, one of the one of the benefits of the approach that NVIDIA has taken is it does it has it doesn't eliminate it, but it does help reduce scams. Like how many I don't know, RTX 2060s, are we going to be seen flashed and sold as 4090s now? <laughs> like, oh, no, I didn't even think of that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's um, that's definitely going to be a problem. That that opens up a can of worms for sure. So that's definitely a big negative of this, but I think, you know, the positives of the flexibility and, like I said, you know, situations with banner water, cool GPUs and, and put, you know, mm-hmm. higher voltage, higher wattage biases on them, that's all very cool um and you know just yeah having the flexibility to to use a range of different biases is is good so i think but yeah there are some cons and pros for sure yeah so just a bit of extra information related to this if people are interested there's two tools that allow you to do this now one called omg v flash another called nv flash k i believe the standard nvidia flash tool is called nv flash so that would be why that's that's named that way um they're both developed apparently uh, independently, but it came to the same sort of um, bypass, which I believe was discovered to be some sort of, I don't know whether you'd call it like a backdoor exploit or something, but something along those lines. So the, the you know, it's not just you can go into the code of NV Flash and just change like lockdown on compared to lockdown off. It's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the GPU itself does perform additional security checks and it's, you know, I'm not a security expert, so why am I even talking about this on the podcast? But you know, something like that happens to to verify that the BIOS can be flashed to that particular model, whereas there's apparently some sort of, um, yeah, there's been a, a bypass or some sort of, yeah, exploit that's been found to get around that, which it's interesting that that's been found right up until the 4090, which mm. or at least the 40 series. It suggests that NVIDIA wasn't aware of that. Maybe the differences between, you know, the 20 series and 40 series capabilities in terms of BIOS flashing indicates that NVIDIA's strengthen the security between 20 series and now mm-hmm. but certainly they haven't fully um, avoided this and typically when these sorts of exports are found you know they can't just release a driver update that um, you know prevents this from occurring it's quite likely that this is some sort of hardware uh, bypass so maybe come the the 50 series NVIDIA will come up with a, a different way to lock this down. But for now, I would expect that these, these sorts of tools will continue to work. It's not going to be um, sort of that that BIOS flashing thing. It's, it's kind of like, the remember when there was the mining hash limiters mm. and stuff? And mm-hmm. then as soon as NVIDIA released like a driver that, you know, had this way to get around it, the cat was out of the bag. It's like, that's it's done now. There's no point like mm-hmm. having that feature in. It's all, you know, the, the exploit's been found. So, yeah. Certainly interesting, probably not something I'll be messing around with personally um, because I like to keep my cards nice and stable, nice and stock. Mm-hmm. Um, had enough crashing in my life and, you know, yeah. back in the day when I used to do it more, but yeah. We'll see what 
people are able to do with it, but I expect at the top end the gains won't be that significant. Um, and yeah, the yeah the risk of crashing and you know the excess power usage and all that probably won't make it worth it. But at the same time, you know, with it's possibly more beneficial to cheaper models as well because you're about to customize things like fan curves and stuff like that without having to rely on the software to load every time and implement those changes. Having that done at a firmware yep. level is kind of nice. So yeah, but anyway, as we said it having the ability to modify these things is just a big plus. Um, and yeah, there's there's very yeah. few negatives. It's good for people with dual BIOS cards as well. Theoretically, mm. you could keep one of the BIOSes as the standard BIOS. You could experiment with, you know, overclocked profiles or other things on the second BIOS. And I think that's why, you know, I think in a lot of your reviews, you've been talking more about like the silent BIOS versus the regular BIOS mm-hmm. as to why a dual bias is necessary, but mm-hmm. when things like this get discovered, it just makes that sort of feature even more handy to have. Yeah, especially when you're paying four hundred dollars or more. I think a dual bias is a really good feature. It's not very costly to add, so yeah, we think it should be mandatory. Okay, we're back to talk about some. I don't know what should we call this segment? Hub extras, something like that. Bit of Insight, off-topic chat. Yeah, insights into Steve's boring life. Yes, we're gonna yes, workshop so think- that, but. <laughs> Well, yeah, I've seen I've seen your topic that you're going to talk about in a moment. I'm like, okay, interesting. Um, I'll, I'll go first though, because uh, this week um, on the weekend I went and saw Oppenheimer and IMAX in Melbourne, mm-hmm. um, where which is it's one of the only places. There's very few places in the world where you can see the full film version actually projected on film, not using a digital um, camera. I'm not a huge like snob about image quality or you know film versus digital movies or anything but it's just interesting that you know in melbourne they happen to have one of these projectors where you can see the like the best quality of it so i thought yo i'll go see the movie in imax it was my sister's birthday so i went there as well she was interested in seeing it had a lot of fun enjoyed watching the movie i thought it was a really quite excellent uh movie so i'm not going to give a movie review or anything because i have i'm not a film critic or anything i enjoyed the movie I thought it was good. Yeah, I enjoy you know historical movies like that, talking about things like World War II and the science involved with making atomic bombs and things like that. So yeah, I enjoyed the story. I thought I thought it was good. But what was interesting as well was that I got I, I get home from Melbourne. I don't really live in Melbourne, so I have to travel a fair way. Get back, look on our Discord community, and someone's messaged me being, "Hey, uh, I saw you at IMAX." Um, <laughs> I saw you there. You know, I saw Tim seeing Oppenheimer at IMAX. I uh, didn't come over or say anything. I had no idea that this person had spotted me or anything. Um, but yeah, I think he said, uh, it was so weird to see him in the flesh then have to explain to my wife and daughter that we were in the presence of Aussie tech royalty, <laughs> which <laughs> is quite funny. Um, but yeah, just, just interesting, such a small world that people are watching our content all over the place and I can just go see a, a movie like a normal person and then come back and have messages like that. I was quite surprised. Well, especially um, given that but, it was an actual like Patreon slash Floatplane member. So yeah, exactly. Funny. A Patreon, existing Patreon, a Floatplane member. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm sure most people, if they were interested in seeing that movie, have probably already seen it by now. I'm definitely very late to seeing it because, mm-hmm. you know, well, my life's I, busy and stuff. But I would like to see it, but I haven't. But yeah, my wife and I will probably see it when it's released from cinema because, you know, taking our two small children to see Oppenheimer is probably not the play. Um, but yeah, there's <laughs> definitely some content there that's 
not appropriate for kids. <laughs> okay. Well, I had suspected so, but thank you for confirming that. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, getting out to the movies and stuff, it's not something we can do that freely and that often um, these days. But Yeah, I don't do it that often either. Like, mm-hmm. I used to go a lot more. Mm-hmm. But these days I'm sort of more of a I'm fine waiting for most films to just, you know, come yeah. on Blu-ray or streaming or whatever and just watching it there. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I've got a particularly amazing, like, you know, cinema setup or anything. I've just got a, a normal TV. That's an OLED. Um, it's an OLED. It, yeah, of course. Of course, it's an OLED. I get the, I get the deep blacks, which t- typically the OLED is better visual quality than um, like in terms of black levels and stuff than a, than a cinema projector. Mm, I would have thought so, so. Yep. If you have to contrast an HDR, then the OLED is definitely going to be better. Whether IMAX, the 1570 film presentation was better, was the resolution on such a huge screen was extremely impressive. So sort of like from my display testing background and things like that i i see the quality of the actual film i'm like this would require like 16k or maybe even like 32k digital resolution to get that sort of quality mm-hmm. um so yeah i sort of notice those sorts of things these days and so that's why i was sort of impressed to see it you, know, you, you were like trying IMAX. not to do a monitor review while watching the movie no yeah i'm sort of like i'm sitting there and i, I, I want to pay attention to the movie i'm sort of like wow you know this was this would have taken quite a bit to film this and yeah. You know, the, the quality is, you know, it'd be nice to have a monitor with that sort of quality. <laughs> but anyway, what, what's your extra of the week? What have you been well, up to? Well, I haven't been getting out and doing all exciting things like Tim. Um, not much has changed since our last podcast. I've basically just been working all day and night every day because the weather's been terrible. Um, yep. I was going to mow the lawns um, over the weekend before I watched the football and the weather wasn't the best and the grass was still wet. I thought, you know what, I'll just service the lawnmower. So that was pretty exciting for me. I did an oil change. Um, wow. Yeah. Yep. Very exciting. Pretty thrilled with how that went. So I got that done. But I am, we've got a couple of nice days of weather coming up. So I might actually mow the lawns, but that's not what I wanted to tell you about the nice weather. I have a I have a monitor-related situation that I'm going to look to rectify over the coming nice days. And I'll probably make a video on it for the main channel. So for my main setup at my desk, I've got three 32-inch 4K 144 hertz panels, and I use two of them primarily, but the third one I like to have like on the weekends or whatever if I'm benchmarking, I like to watch the football games or whatever, so the third monitor is good for that. Uh, but I haven't really been able to use it because the triple monitor stand I've got, which was quite expensive, mind you, I can't remember the exact model, I'll find it out for the video, it's... For a lack of a better term, utter garbage. Like it just sucks. The monitor's <laughs> like droop dead. I, I spent. I've seen it. Yeah. I think yeah. it was like four or five hundred dollars. It was one of the better ones or the best one that we could get here in Australia. Again, I can't remember the brand, but it's one of the you know, popular monitor um, making brands. Uh, it was like a desk mount one, so it comes up and it's got a lot of adjustment. But got the three monitors on there, and I've adjusted the hell out of it, and. They don't really fit properly. It seems like weight's a bit of a problem because they sort of sag down a bit. Anyway, it's crap. And then I've got another two 32-inch monitors. So there's five in total, but these are just freestanding on my desk. And one's like, well, they're they're each on a GPU test system. So I thought, you know what? I can get the welder out, get a bit of steel, get just those, you know, the single like Visa mounts that have small amount of adjustment, just like the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I could just get five of those 
weld that to a frame that goes around the desk and it'll lock all the monitors in place really nicely and that'd be exactly where I want them. Sort of like, you know, do a customized job for my custom desk. I thought about that a while ago. Haven't really had time to do it because, you know, I'm like, well, I could go do that thing for my monitors or I could just make a video. Uh, I thought, well, why not make a video doing that? Because I think people would be interested in making like a custom monitor arm that can support five 32-inch monitors. So anyway, weather's going to be good later in the week and I plan to get started on that. The annoying thing is it's not as simple just, you know, obviously it's going to take a bit of time to sort of engineer and produce that. I can't do all that well. All my stuff is in the spot that it's going to go in. So I've then got to take all the monitors down, put them on monitor stands and move it to the middle of my desk and use my system and the test systems to the best of my ability there while I spend a couple of days making that. So anyway, I don't know. So you're going to attach it directly to the desk? Like That's it's right. It's not going to be a, it'll have like like, a clamp or something. It's no, going to screw in. It'll have like three legs that sort of one in the middle and then one either side and it'll, it'll yeah, wrap yeah. around. Obviously I can't visualize this because it's meant to be a podcast. Um, but yeah, I've got a rough idea of how I want to do it in my head and I think I can do it and I think it'll work, but I'm yet to do so. So anyway, I think that could be a fun main channel video because I haven't done a video on the, the mega desk as it, as it got um, <laughs> lovingly referred to by many people. Haven't done any updates on the desk and the desk after it's about, do I want to say two years? It must be about two years old now. My one's like a year old, so yours would be... Yeah, a must, year before that yeah it must be about two years old and it's been going great it's worked out better than i sort of ever imagined it would so that's cool but yeah the monitor stand that i paid a lot of money for was a huge letdown i, I got a, a monitor stand that's also expensive from a different brand for bail and i thought you know what this one sucked i'll try a different brand so i got bail and a jewel 30 it supports up to 32 inches and bail has two 32 inch monitors i got him a jewel one and it's not as bad because I guess it's got one less monitor, but it still kind of sucks. So I was thinking if I'm successful in making mine, I'll make uh, a duplicate to go down the other end of the desk for Balin um, because he's got two editing rigs that he uses now. So we're working him over time. So I thought if I can optimize his workflow as well. So yeah, it's not yeah, really... I've always, I've always been super disappointed with most double or triple monitor stands mm. that I've tested. I haven't tested heaps of them. Mm. Um, so yeah... Single stands I've typically found to be very good. Mm -hmm. Like you can't really go wrong with like just a monitor arm for one monitor. But as soon as you start adding two, I, I think a lot of the issues come down to monitors aren't even, don't ha always have even weight distribution. So if like the power supply is slightly to the right of center inside the monitor, then unless you have a really, really tight and well-fitting stand, there's all that opportunity for sag. Like mm. you may have two monitors that, you know, they sag slightly to the right when really you're buying a dual monitor stand to have them like perfectly level and perfectly even. Mm -hmm. And often I've just found that they're, they're just not strong enough. They don't grip. Like it's the trade-off between adjustment and strength and mm. they always offer plenty of adjustment, but they can never just quite hold the monitor well enough. And it seems a lot of them are built for like tiny, lightweight 24 inch mm -hmm. monitors and yeah. as soon as you start putting on like 27 32 inch ones which are heavier again the weight distribution is not always even then yes yeah, just starts to cause problems and yeah, i've just never been super impressed with them that's why all my monitors are just on their built-in stands from the factory i've never used at least for my main setup this mm -hmm. podcast desk has monitor arms on it but the the my normal setup doesn't mm -hmm. yeah well i'm at my my sort of streaming setup right now and i've done 
sort of what you're suggesting. So I've got a I've got a timber backing that wraps around me, and I've got two monitors, but they're on independent wall-mounted arms. So that works really well. I've got a lot of flexibility and movement in them, and I can line them up perfectly because there's the two you know independent arms. They're not on one arm. So that's that's probably the best way to go about it. And that's a similar sort of uh technique style i'll be going for with the one i'll be building but anyway i've had no experience building these before uh so who knows how this is going to turn out but i'll make a main channel video could be a huge flop could be a great success uh time will tell hopefully i can get that out on the channel next week so we'll we'll see how we go but yeah i'll probably start filming that on thursday i'm keen no idea how long it's going to take what will be involved it's just going to be a one of my one of my little fun projects that i like to do so yeah that, that's yeah, no. that's it keen to see the results of that mm. so yeah we'll have to stay tuned for the main hard run box channel to see how how that's going to go <laughs> so yeah that's pretty much the end of episode two of the hard run boxed podcast a bit shorter than the previous episode and i think this is sort of more this the normal style of the podcast that we'll be going for so if you sort of you you signed up, you you watched the first one about our in-depth discussion. We will have a few more in-depth discussions in future videos. There's one that we've flagged about talking about advertising, how we do advertising, the the pitfalls and you know the conflicts of interest and things like that relating to advertising. So we will do some deep dives at times, but yeah, we're not going to be talking for hours about other YouTubers most of the time. So hopefully you've enjoyed the the less of the drama, more of the just normal tech chat episode. And yeah. You can subscribe to the, uh, what we call it, the Hard Run Box Podcast YouTube channel. You yeah, can... a few people were saying it should be podcast unboxed, but I'm like, but wouldn't that mean we're primarily a podcast that focuses on talking about podcasts? <laughs> I would have thought, like, there's a little bit of that sort of meta, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, we, we went with the the name so you could actually search for it a bit easier <laughs> in, the, in your podcast apps and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, sign up to the podcast apps if you want to get the audio version. YouTube version is available if you want to see our faces, but there's no real other visual component. It literally is just us. So yeah, you don't want that. Not always worth it. And yeah, we will be back next week, same time, planning on releasing them roughly the same day every week. So yeah, thanks everyone. We'll see you in the next one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.